Welcome to episode 66, The Devil's Episode. (laughs) Not really. Do you hear people talk about getting back to nature or that we should eat like we are still in the jungle, maybe kind of reminiscent of eating paleo? And do you kind of feel that that stuff must be a bit bullshit because we're not in the trees anymore and we're sophisticated human beings? not monkeys. (laughs) If that type of thing sits a bit weird with you or makes you roll your eyes, then today's guest will help you make sense of it all because he wrote a book on human evolution and specifically to help us understand why being so separate from nature results in so much chronic disease. It's really quite a good chat. Oh, and we also touch on fasting and being ketogenic as well. So let's dive into it. Welcome to the How to Not Get Sick and Die podcast. You've tuned in because you want to start taking your health seriously, so you don't, well, get sick and die. Here we talk all things health, nutrition, and human optimization. Let's jump into it with your host and resident scientist, Maddie Lansdowne. What's up, my healthy friends? Welcome to another interview episode of the show. And I've been sharing my mission a little bit on here lately, which is to coach, personally coach 150 people to create the healthy lifestyle they truly want before the end of 2020. And today's episode really helps facilitate that mission. Now, we're going to be diving into this really, really good episode today, covering some fundamental human concepts that really are in need of exposure to your knowledge in order to help us all understand how we got to be in this chronic disease mess that our world is currently in. Why does everyone we know have some type of disease? It seems like that, right? That everybody in our family, all of our friends are sort of suffering from something. In fact, I used to run events right here in the heart of Melbourne, which I will be doing again soon, actually. And one of the exercises that we used to help people understand just how bad things were was that we would talk about sort of top five leading diseases. And then we would ask everyone to stand up and say, okay, now sit down if you yourself or someone you know has experienced, say, cancer. And you know what? Whether we had 10 people, 20 people, or 500 people in the room, the results were always the same. At least 80% of the room would sit down. And that is just one question about one disease. There's a laundry list of other diseases. And so, it's probably fair to assume that we really only needed to ask two or three questions more maybe to have 100% of people sit down. It's, It's just absolutely horrifying. But there is a reason for all of this. And once we have that information, we can kind of do something with it. And today's guest has written a book on this exact topic called Health Evolution. And he kindly sent me a copy. We connected via Instagram. I've read it. It's amazing. I think everybody needs to get their hands on it to truly understand why our species has evolved to be in this situation. So, I want to introduce you to Dr. Stephen Hussey, whom holds a doctorate of chiropractic and a master's in human nutrition and functional medicine from the University of Western States in Portland, which is actually the master's course I've been considering doing myself. He is a health coach, speaker, and the author of two books on health, The Health Evolution, Why Understanding Evolution is the Key to Vibrant Health, and The Heart our most medically misunderstood organ. Dr. Hussey guides clients from all over the world back to health by using the latest research and health attaining strategies and also has himself a lovely family that he spends time with when he isn't solving the disease problems of the world. So I just want to say a big warm welcome, Dr. Hussey. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's awesome to be here. Not a problem at all. You're very welcome. I'm I'm excited to hear. You had a good day? Yeah, so far so good. Um, just kind of catching up on stuff around the house today. One of those days. Yeah, you were saying your Friday is your day off. That's the best day of the week to have off. That's right. Yeah, it's get the weekend started early and, and catch up on stuff that I don't have time to do in the week because I'm working like crazy Monday through Thursday. So, 
Yeah, absolutely. Now, speaking of working crazy Monday through Thursday, I'd love you to share your journey as to how you got here, as as to how you got to the point of working, you know, those crazy Monday to Thursday, helping people solve their disease and health issues. Because I know from our emails beforehand and, and your Instagram that your health journey and your educational journey has been pretty unique. So I'd love if you could share with that to give the listeners some context as to where the place you're coming from today. Yeah, for sure. I, I think like like a lot of people who kind of have the mindset I do or or do the kind of things that I do, you know, it really started, you know, personally, like a personal effect on health uh, for me. And it, it started at a very young age. Um, I was, uh, I, my parents tell me that at the age of two is when they first started seeing signs that, you know, I was having some health issues and my dad noticed me like wheezing and coughing. And, um, you know, he, since his, he had had experience with asthma, he, he knew that I was having asthma. And so it took me to the doctor. And of course I was diagnosed with asthma. And then from there, you know, throughout my childhood, I, I had a lot of, you know, inflammatory conditions is what I would categorize them as. Um, so I had things like irritable bowel syndrome, or I used to uh, break out in chronic hives. Um, I had terrible allergies to cats and certain foods and things. There's always inflammatory things. And then ultimately, at age nine, I ended up with autoimmune type one diabetes where my body attacked the cells that make insulin. So I no longer make insulin in my body and I have to give it, um, from outside the body. And so, um, from there, I was kind of thrown into this, this medical world that was quote unquote, helping me manage this condition. Um, and so what I realized though, around, I guess by the time I got to college is that I could do things. I could live my life a certain way, and um, and I could easily, more easily manage this condition of type one diabetes and get rid of all these inflammatory things that I had. Uh, and no doctor had ever told me that uh, that you know my diet mattered, and you know avoiding toxins mattered, and managing stress mattered to the management of this condition. And so um, I kind of got disillusioned with with medicine, and you know I had I had wanted. I was going to college to. Um, you know, probably hopefully eventually become, you know, a medical doctor. And I kind of, you know, took a turn because I realized that they didn't really help me in the way that I feel like I best could have been helped. Uh, and so instead I went to chiropractic school and, um, again, thought I was going to learn the answers to why all these things happened to me. Um, but didn't, even though it's a more holistic education, I, I didn't really learn those things. Um, and so I just kept looking and kept looking and kept looking. Uh, for the answers, um, and eventually wound up doing what I'm doing here, writing books about the answers that I found, and helping people um, who who are um, going through the same thing I was, and helping them get through that as well. Yeah, it seems like a common narrative on the show that uh, people, as you sort of mentioned at the start there, that are in these sort of alternative or non-allopathic medical models in as, as employees often found their way there through feeling somewhat failed by the conventional system or, you know, they just couldn't find the answers in the conventional medical system that we were told or are told should be there. Right. Yeah. And I, and I think that, I think that not only are more and more people, you know, on that end of it, like on my end of it, like providers getting that, but more and more patients uh, are getting, are realizing they're not getting the results that they think they should get. And that, that Western medicine is kind of, uh, you know, churning water when it comes to chronic disease. Uh, and so they're, they're looking for other places or other sources of information to, about how to attain health. 
Yeah, and I, I totally agree with with that. And I really want to, based on that and your experience, it really that sort of lays a great foundation to get into the context of the book. So, w- why did you feel the need to lay out our evolutionary history, which I think is an extremely important thing to lay out? But why did you feel motivated to explain that in the book for people to understand? Well, I'm the type of person like obviously. I wasn't satisfied with the answers I was getting from, you know, my doctors when I was younger and then even, you know, a medical education that I got. Like I wasn't satisfied with the answers as to why my body did the things it did. And so I kept looking and I kept looking. And it really wasn't until I started reading evolution or, or about evolution. So I started reading people um, like Richard Dawkins and Jared Diamond and um, uh, Darwin himself. I, I read his books um, and I started putting things together is when you learn about evolution, um, it, it, it kind of, and then you apply it to other living things like, like, like humans, which people don't usually tend to do. We tend to think about evolution in, in nature, but when you do that, it really gave me the answers finally. Like I was like, Oh, this is what happened. Um, there's nothing I could have done about it because we didn't know then, but there are things I can do now. Uh, and I can, I can, um, use these principles of evolution that I was learning about and, and put my body in a better environment. That's what evolution is all about. It's about reacting to your environment or being best suited for an environment. And we can't change, you know, the living things genes, but we can change its environment. So that was like really enlightening to me. And so I wanted to lay that out uh, for people and show them because to me, to continue to do something or to be motivated to do something, I need to understand why I'm doing it and why it's going to help. So hopefully I did that for other people. Yeah, absolutely. I definitely think you do that for other people. I've I've recommended the book to a few people. And um, when you when you sort of talk about the environment, are you sort of entering the epigenetics conversation a little bit there too? Yeah, definitely. So, you know, epigenetics is is the idea that's that's all but been proven is that you know our genes are are not set in stone. We don't have this set of genes that pre-programs us for certain diseases. You know, um, they have identified certain genes that you know make people more likely to get them, but whether or not that gene decides to express itself in a way that will give someone a disease is entirely dependent of the environment or the signals, the information that that uh, genetic material gets. And so that's something we can change. We can um, we can change the information, uh, the environment around those genes, uh, and and allow the gene to express itself in a healthy way. Um, and so that's kind of the, the nature of epigenetics. And that's that's you know the baseline of of what I do with with coaching and want people to know is that if we look at things evolutionarily, um, you know, it takes a long time for evolution to happen, and there's no way that that one individual living thing can change its genes or change its characteristics because that happens over many generations. However, we can change the environment around us. So we do have complete control when it comes to creating a, a better health than we may have at the current time. Well, when you, I totally agree. And when you say it takes many generations, just um, just in context of helping people understand just how long it takes evolution to occur how many generations are we talking or how many years since the last human evolution um that i mean so i have a theory about that and i know that through the work of a russian scientist um who selectively bred foxes and tried to get you know to basically domesticate them um he saw changes he basically had foxes that were behaving like dogs Uh, he he kind of um um he bred them to to be that way, and he did that over thirty generations, and that was thirty generations of very controlled breeding, right? So 
usually wouldn't happen that way in nature. It wouldn't be that as cut and dry, you know? Um, so at least 30 generations, which is a long time because, you know, I don't even, you know, know my great, great grandfather. And so that was only like four generations ago, you know? Yeah. So it, it's a very long time. And so, but I, I think that acknowledging that humans are so subject, subject to evolution is very important, even though we can't see it because no one will ever see evolution happen um, with, within humans, within a lifespan, like a single human lifespan. But I do think that one example of um, the last, you know, human evolution that we saw um, or that we see is the idea that, and this is something that you know, we, you all learn and everybody learns in medical school. You go to medical school, no matter what type of medical professional you are, you learn that that people of minority descent um, are more susceptible to chronic diseases or, you know, like metabolic syndrome diseases, like heart disease um, and type 2 diabetes uh, and these types of things. And and so the, to me, the reason that is, is because that people of European descent, uh, most of them, um, we're, we're eating westernized foods, uh, sooner than people of minority descent, most people of minority descent. So what I mean by that is that, you know, we have, you know, like, um, I think of like medieval Europe and Renaissance Europe and that kind of stuff. Um, and they're, you know, largely agricultural societies, um, relying on, you know, these, um, processed plant foods, you know, where they're relying on a lot of, uh, whether it's corn or wheat or rice, uh, those types of things. And so in that time, people of European descent, um, since we didn't have modern medicine, keeping, you know, the people who had bad reactions to those types of things alive, lots of them died off and they didn't reproduce as well as people who didn't have bad reactions to those. So there's a little bit of evolution happening there. And so when we look today and we see that, um, people of European descent are less likely to get diabetes and heart disease and things like that on that diet. I think that there was a little bit of evolved resistance to that. It's still not great for them either. Um, but then when we look at people of minority descent, uh, whether they're like the Samoans or of African descent or uh, Native American, um, people like that, when they start eating this westernized diet, you know, their ancestors didn't really have a, a evolution or adaptation phase like people of European descent did. And so they tend to get these diseases more severely and more often um, than people of European descent. And so to me, that was just that that was kind of the last um, thing I think that happened evolutionary for humans, because when we started agriculture um, and we made we started you know living in cities, um, which happened around 10,000 years ago. Uh, we kind of, you know, evolution was still taking place, but we slowed it down a lot. There wasn't these aggre- aggressive selection pressures anymore. Um, and so that was one of the ones that was still working. Um, but, but yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I guess it's pretty, it seems pretty obvious, uh, at least as somebody that is aware of medicine and health and conscious of sort of observing the data in my own world, that those sort of minorities that you're referring to also very obviously to me as someone looking at the data, it, uh, you know, they gain weight super quickly. They, um, when they're on these westernized diets and, and through the fact, like you're saying, that they didn't have any adaption phase, it was just all of a sudden, all of this abundant, high calorific food was available, and then the body had no way to process it in a way that was effective and keep the body skinny. But they definitely gain weight very quickly compared to those European descent um, groups, for sure. Uh, and and you you can just see it. I mean, clinically, you see it. Um, and so, to me, I mean, what, medicine doesn't think about it evolutionarily, but that's exactly what happened in my in my opinion. 
yeah, it makes total sense. And I guess for me, I talk a lot on the podcast about fasting and and the periods going without food and to, you know, I get lots of followers. That's the most inquired thing that I have from listeners of the podcast, from Instagram, from every platform is people sort of, you know, they're scared about fasting or is it healthy or what is it good? But I would just want you to share some information about your understanding of fasting in the context of evolution and sort of how maybe the agricultural revolution really disrupted that by all of a sudden providing us with, you know, food available all day, every day. Yeah, definitely. And so this is like, you know, a perfect example of how evolution explains why something could be good for us. Um, so when we're talking about fasting, so, you know, before 10 to 12,000 years ago, before we had, you know, humans started farming, some humans started farming and living in cities and started civilization, things like that, things like that. The, um, the, the go-to was, was hunting, you know, or foraging or finding your own food. And, you know, that, that wasn't always, um, you know, readily available and you had to kind of work for that. And so you may, you know, feast on, on something that you killed, or you may come across a, um, you know, an area where there's lots of certain plant food you could eat, uh, and you kind of gorge on that, but then you've got to move along and you've got to keep, you know, looking for food elsewhere or tracking the next animal. And so there would have been a period where you were, you weren't eating. And so if that was, if that was the status quo for, you know, 300,000 years that modern humans have been around, or even before that, you know, 2.5 million years when the first genus of Homo came about, then that's a very long time. You know, if we look at 2.5 million years and then 10,000 years ago, only 10,000 years ago, all of a sudden we have this massive source of, of calories and I would argue lower quality calories, you know, around then, you know, we can, we can store those, uh, for winter and we can, um, you know, uh, mass produce a lot of them. And so we have this access to these poor quality calories, um, all the time. And so people are eating them, um, all the time, like three meals a day, this kind of thing, um, started happening. And that, that did two things. One, I think it created poor health. And I think originally when that first started happening, there probably was a little bit of evolution taking place because the the people with genes who didn't respond well to that switch probably didn't make it. And so the ones who did, um, or at least did well enough uh, to survive and reproduce did make it. Uh, so there's probably a little evolution there. But the things that happened is that um, our health suffered. And there's clear archaeological evidence of this, that when humans first started farming, that they struggled. They can study the bone structure and the, the health of the mouth and the teeth. Uh, and it was clear that they were struggling. But the other thing it did is that, you know, evolution is really only concerned about, um, you know, a, a living thing being healthy enough to pass on its genes uh, to have offspring. So it wasn't really concerned about you know, the longevity of that living thing. Once it could pass on its genes, that's all that mattered. And so if these, if this, um, you know, abundant amount of calories in the form of these crops uh, was allowing us to get to that point of reproduction, um, then that's what allowed us to grow in numbers. Like all of a sudden we started having all these um, kids because we had this, uh, you know, excessive amount of, of calories or abundant amount of calories. And so the population exploded you know, civilization, civilizations exploded in number. Um, but the health, uh, of, of humans probably isn't, or wasn't as robust, uh, and hasn't been since that time, I would argue. And there's clear evidence of this, you know, 
with the ancient Egyptians um, and how they struggled with with their health because we can study mummies and we see that they have um, atherosclerosis in their arteries. Um, despite not eating very many animal foods, they were an agriculture society and they, they ate a lot of uh, wheat and, and emer, which is another type of grain. Um, and so now we're not fasting at all. We're eating food all day long. Um, and so we're struggling with our health and we're losing out on the benefits of fasting because we evolved to do that. And so, you know, when we're fasting, we, we put ourselves into a ketotic state. So we're making and burning ketones. But if we're just eating these high carbohydrate grains and, and sugars and things all the time, then we're forcing our body to rely on glucose. And there's plenty of downsides to that. Um, as far as, um, damage to the body, um, and excess free radical production and things like that. We want to be in a more ketotic state or at least have the ability to go back and forth easily. Um, but also we're losing out on the benefit of uh, detoxification. So if you're, you know, giving your body all these calories all the time, then your body has no time to focus on, um, upregulating like the antioxidant system in our liver and getting rid of toxins. Uh, it's having to deal with all these calories all the time. Um, and then another one is that um, if we're not fasting, we're, we're losing out on the benefits of autophagy, which is basically um, when your, your body takes old cells that aren't doing as well um, and breaks them down and makes new ones. Um, so it, it, so it can, we can get a little boost in our physiology. Um, but if we're not fasting, then we're, we're not getting that done either. Uh, and we're just letting those, those old, you know, um, less productive cells survive and, and we're kind of surviving off that. So picture this, right? Unlocking your potential, conquering emotional eating, and gaining insights directly from a health and nutrition expert such as myself. That's what we do inside the Healthy Mums Collective Facebook group, which is currently free to join. If you've ever felt trapped by food challenges, struggled with maintaining a healthy lifestyle, or yearned for a community that understands the reasons why you've yo-yo dieted for years, then there's a new chapter waiting to be written. And this is your chance to start writing it by joining us all on Facebook Lives, on engaging posts that push you out of your comfort zone and into growth, and Q&A sessions with me. All of this works as a platform to begin changing your emotional eating problems for good. Oh, and also, as a special gift, you receive my transformative How to Turn Food into Self-Confidence ebook. And that's also for free. I get it. Skepticism might linger. You might think, Maddie, I've heard these ads and I'm not sure. Well, at least a quarter of the members inside the Healthy Mums Collective Facebook group have been paying clients of my emotional eating program at some point over the last three or four years. So if you're not sure, you can post in the group and ask to find out if I'm the real deal or not. It's totally up to you. To join us in the free Healthy Mums Collective and to end your emotional eating and feel good in your own skin and begin that journey, pop down to the show notes below, click the link and breeze through three simple entry questions. Join today and let's embark on a journey of growth and empowerment. The link is in the show notes below. And so because the introduction of 10,000 years ago of the agricultural revolution came so suddenly and evolution takes thousands and thousands of years, we're still not adapted to meals, you know, two to six times a day. And fasting is still a benefit because our genetics are still from thousands of years ago. Is that, is that a correct uh, summation? Yeah, and I think that there probably has been some evolution, but but since we started living, since we've made life easy, you know, we we took out a lot of the the natural selections um, that that would have happened if we were living like in the wild with like with other animals, you know, um, 
And we, we kind of protected ourselves in these civilizations and we protected our food supply. So the harshness of nature, I think that would have supplied some of those, um, um, those selection pressures uh, was removed. And so we've, we've definitely, we probably haven't stopped evolving, but we've slowed it down. And that's why we're still not evolved to, I think, um, this, this, this high, um, you know, processed calorie diet and eating it all the time. We've become so lazy that we've made ourselves weaker. <laughs> yeah, to an extent, yeah. Yeah, the life of luxury comes at a cost. I did a post actually just recently um, and saying that we're in a stage of de-evolution and this kind of conversation is, yeah, is really highlighting that, I think. Yeah, and this is and this is a, like a slippery slope kind of conversation because people may get offended by this, but you know, that's exactly what we're doing. I mean... I mean, I'll take me for example. I'll offend myself. Um, like, you know, my genes had a very bad reaction to the modern day environment that we're in. And if, if, you know, if Western medicine, as much as I don't like what it is, but if it wasn't there, if synthetic insulin had never been made, I would not have survived. And my genes that had a faulty response to that environment would have died with me. And I would not be able to pass them on to children. And so that's kind of how evolution works. But, but since, you know, we have these modern advances, people can stay alive, which is great. You know, we want people to, to obviously live, but we've kind of removed evolution. And so when we think about another aspect, I mean, one aspect is that our, that our way of life has changed so rapidly, but the other aspect is that we've kind of removed all these evolutionary selection pressures by making life so easy for us. And so that's just kind of, instead of, instead of working toward one set of genes that's best fit for the environment, which is what evolution does, we've kind of diluted things. Um, and I am an example of that. Yeah, and I think most people listening, including myself, have been beneficiaries of Western medicine at some point. So, as much as on the podcast, I sort of you know say that the piece of the pie that Western medicine has is just too big, and I very much agree with that. There are still benefits to modern medicine, but here's a potentially controversial statement or question, but are we in a situation where the medical industry that we've formulated across time is facilitating the extinction of our species? Because Western medicine allows people to breed and have babies. It's sort of a bit too scientific. It allows people to have families that otherwise would have died out. And so, they're, we're perpetuating like like I said in the start of the podcast, like so many people have different diseases and illnesses, and so we're in a stage where medicine allows the perpetuation of genes that would otherwise have died out, and thus leading to our eventual extinction. Yeah, and I think that that medicine and just you know medical technology that we have is doing that definitely. Um, I think that there are other things too, like um, like just socioeconomic status is doing that. Uh, I mean, I give one example in the book, like if let's say someone has the most ideal set of genes for the modern day environment, but they're born in one of the poorest countries in the world. Um, and they just don't have, you know, you know, the advantages that someone born in a, in a, um, like a first world country would have. And let's say they don't make it, um, and their genes die with them, but those were good genes. Whereas someone could be born in a very westernized country, um, a very affluent country, um, with the worst set of genes in the world. And because of where they're born, they, they live and they pass on their genes. Um, and so that just is, is more of a result of, um, or there's more of an explanation of, of, of why we have this epidemic of chronic disease and why so many people have chronic disease. However, 
the upside to that is that, you know, we can change our environment, you know, and, and, you know, especially those of us in affluent countries who have the privilege to do that. Um, and I think it's, it's kind of our responsibility to do that if we, if we're living in those countries, because, um, I think it's better for the world. I make that argument in the book, um, to, to put yourself in an environment that is going to be best for your genes. Uh, so you can make the strongest genes possible because there's studies that show that, you know, you, you know, the, the epigenetics kind of get passed on. So if you create very strong genes by changing your environment, you're passing those on to your children. You're creating a stronger set of genes as you go. But if you do, if you do things that make your genes very weak, um, and make you very sick and you pass on those genes, then they're passed on a little bit, um, a little bit worse than they were when you got them. So we can, we can definitely have, or we can definitely have a choice into, um, these kind of evolutionary principles that are affecting humans. It's kind of ironic that if you're in if you're in privilege, you actually need to actively go and make your life a little bit shitter and tougher and harder in order to make your your genes stronger and better. So I think I find that kind of ironic. <laughs> yeah, in a way, that's kind of what that's kind of what it is, you know. So if you're living in the first world, which I'm certain most of my listeners are, you've got to get out there and make your life tougher and expose yourself to new things in order to get your genes to develop in the right way to strengthen your body against disease. Right. Yeah. I mean, there's this whole, there's this whole concept of a hormetic stress. Um, and that is, you know, when you, in, you do, a, you apply a little bit of a stress to your body and it actually responds stronger. Like, you know, you can give yourself a little bit of a toxin. Um, and then your body will upregulate the antioxidant system to get rid of that toxin and end up being a net positive because it over activated that. So you get a net positive. So, I mean, some examples of these are, um, exercise, you know, is a hormetic stress or, or extreme heat and extreme cold. Like people do these infrared saunas and, and these cold therapies or cryotherapies and things. Those are hormetic stresses. Um, but also things that we eat can be hormetic stresses. Um, so, uh, so yeah, it's almost like you're making your life a little hard on yourself, um, to create stronger genes. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I, I very much take that approach. I do the, I do the saunas. I do the cold showers. I do the ice baths. You know, I, I do, I put myself in competitions and, or, you know, fitness events that I know are going to stress me out. But in, in, with the exact logic that you're, you're sort of explaining here is that evolutionary logic of we need, we need tough situations to, to make better genes, to evolve better genes. So no, I find this stuff so interesting. I love this evolution stuff, but what, You've got a quote in the book, and you've got a ton of great stuff in the book, but one that I was interested in, and it's kind of what we're talking about now, which is just disease is caused by an attempt to live outside of nature. So I'm curious if you could touch on maybe the top three diseases that you believe are a result of our maladaption or inability to adapt to our current living situation. Like, What are the top three that you see in the clinic maybe, or you think they're the most widespread as a result of no longer living in nature? Yes. Um, I mean... I talk a lot about the heart, so we'll start with heart disease. Um, and, and I argue a lot, you know, on, in, uh, my content that I put out there, whether it's on social media or on my blog and stuff that, um, that heart attacks, you know, a lot of heart attacks are not caused by a blockage. They're caused by these imbalances that happen, these three imbalances. And that is not being well adapted to burning fat, having high amounts of what's called oxidative stress, which is when your body um, makes basically rusts, I guess, you know, rusting is a form of oxidative stress when iron rusts. Yeah, for sure. Um, the body has kind of a mechanism that does that too. And then the other is an autonomic nervous system imbalance. 
And so those three things, when they happen, you know, the stars can kind of align and set off the series of events that can trigger a heart attack and no, no blockage is required. Um, and so I think that the things that rebalance those things, uh, when we look at what we need to do, it's, it's eat a more species appropriate diet, which in my opinion is a higher fat, you know, um, diet that's going to get you into uh, ketosis and things, which is going to help you with that fat adaptation. It's a diet, um, or also, I mean, reducing oxidative stress. So that's going to be like avoiding toxins that we weren't exposed to for the millions of years of our evolution that we are now. So we have to be, you know, have to avoid those, um, but also burning fats instead of carbohydrates. And in absolute abundance. Yeah, right. I mean, what is it? I think um, in the book, I, I quote a, um, a researcher that says like maybe 70,000 new toxic chemicals have been pumped into our environment since 1950. Yeah, I find that's the number that most people go with. Yeah. So that's, you know, that's scary. And then, you know, rebalancing our autonomic nervous system, the, the things that do that are are um, being in nature, like contact with nature, um, loving relationships, you know, and having close, meaningful relationships. Um, rather than a lot of superficial ones, I feel like a lot of people have these days. Um, but it's also, you know, things like, um, I mean, there's all kinds of things to do it, but fasting will actually do it. will actually rebalance your autonomic nervous system. And so there's, there's all these things. And when you look at all the things that create balance in these three imbalances, it's moving us back toward that evolutionary environment that we evolved in for millions of years. So that's heart disease. I think that Another one, I mean, I deal with back pain. People come to me for back pain, neck pain, headaches, that kind of thing um, in like my, my clinical, you know, in-office practice. And I think that the number one things that I, that I do for them is I restore proper motion because these days people just aren't moving. Um, or, I mean, if you think about it, somebody could go their whole day without putting their hip through the full range of motion. Um, and that is going to lead to degeneration in a joint. That'd be so common, right? Yeah. I mean, my mattress is on the floor um, because I want to get up from a squatting position when I get out of bed because I want my hip to go through a full range of motion, you know? Yeah, right. Um, rather than just kind of swivel off the bed and, and never do that. And then sit in an office chair all day. Right. And just never do a full squat, you know, never get down there and get that hip full. And, and that's just one joint. There's many joints. And I I focus a lot on the joints of the spine because they, they don't get any, um, they don't get full range of motion either. And so, you know, with an adjustment, I can create motion in that joint again. And that's the way I look at it. Um, I don't look at it as treating pain. I'm treating, you know, um, improper motion or movement, um, which will have an effect on pain. Um, so there's that, you know, the lack of, of movement that people um, have these days, I think, is, is leading to pain. But also lots of dietary stuff as well. Um, I mean, inflammatory diets can definitely drive, drive pain uh, and toxins can definitely drive pain as well. Um, and then, you know, I, the, I guess the, the, the third one I'll bring up is, is cancer. I think that, that that is a, a, uh, direct result of, again, toxins. You know, we know of so many things in our, our world that are, you know, quote unquote carcinogenic. Um, and, um, I think it's also due to, um, you know, heavy carbohydrate diets and not, you know, at least being metabolically flexible, being able to go into fat burning, because if you, rely on carbohydrates, your body will actually almost lose the ability to go into fat burn. You have to reteach it to do that. And I think that that creates, you know, damage to certain structures in the cells. Uh, and that, and when that damage happens, it sends signals to the, the DNA and the nucleus that tell a cell to become cancerous. It's not like a 
mutation per se. It's almost like an instruction because of the damaged environment that the, the body is in. Um, and so when we look at how we correct those things, again, it's moving toward this more, you know, ancestral or evolutionary diet. It's removing the toxins. It's, it's again, managing the stress that's unnatural to us. Uh, and so all these things, when you look about, we think about how we correct these, uh, this epidemic of chronic disease, it's, it's moving ourselves back into that, um, natural environment within the confines of our modern day society. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with all of those. And, and, uh, you know, I, I can't help but acknowledge the metabolic flexibility reference you made in there. And, you know, that's the stuff that I, I sort of, um, sort of dive really deep into with the fasting and the metabolic flexibility. And, and, and I guess living so, um, so I guess one dimensional in the way that we live and not being exposed to these stresses and not being exposed to situations where we use our full range of moment, uh, movement means that any time that we have to go out of these, these single dimension lives that we live, we actually react super negatively. We get a back injury or we, we catch an illness or we catch a, or develop a disease because we're just so unconditioned to be able to respond effectively that it's like, yeah, we're setting ourselves up for failure. Yeah, exactly. And you bring up a really good point because to me, life or, or, or the goal of a living thing, or I guess the, the key to survival of any living thing is the ability to adapt to an environment. Uh, so like if I'm, you know, in an environment and all of a sudden something threatening comes out to try and get me, if I don't adapt to that, I'm not going to make it right. Right. And so when we look at some of the imbalances that are happening, you know, metabolic flexibility is basically your body ability to adapt from burning one fuel source to another. Um, and because of the way things are in our biochemistry, if we fuel ourselves with only carbohydrates, um, or mainly even mainly carbohydrates, if we give ourselves too many of those, um, then we never learn to be, be able to burn fats. And that's, I think, dangerous for our health. Or if we look at the autonomic nervous system, we can, we can be in an environment that is triggering our stress nervous system all the time. And we almost lose the ability to get into the non-stress. And so we've lost the ability to adapt again, uh, or certain brain waves. We can, we can be become imbalanced in the type of brain waves that we, that we use. And so again, we're losing the ability to adapt. And, and if we lose the ability to adapt, we're not going to do very well at surviving in any environment. Yeah, I totally agree. Like, and the brainwaves one is a good one because they're, the brainwave state is so connected to how you perceptually and um, subconsciously manage your stress and perceive stress in your environment. So I'm really glad that you mentioned the brainwave one because it's one most people would never think about. Like, it's just, you know, it's just not even on the radar, um, even for most practitioners as well. But yeah, being able to access those deeper brainwaves that uh, states to process trauma, to process stress, to be able to live or remove that cortisol adrenaline load that's on your adrenals and your body um, is super important. And, and obviously, with stress being one of the major causes of disease, obviously, again, we're in a conversation about our maladaption to stress. Exactly. Yeah. And that's, to me, I think, you know, with all my work, that's, that's one of the driving, that's the driving force in these heart attacks that have no blockage is, is the inability to, to cope with what I would say is an unnatural, um, uh, environment as far as our stress response goes for humans. Um, you know, just the, I think a lot of it has to do with, with the fact that we, you know, we used to know how to kind of master our environment and get resources from everywhere. And now, we have to rely on one um, 
resource, which is money, to get us all our other resources. And so we sacrifice everything to get that money. Um, people know how to do one thing and they know how to do one thing very well, but they don't know how to do everything else because they outsource it. And I think that it's just very stressful to be um, dependent on that kind of system. Not that I'm you know, speaking out against capitalism or anything like that, but it's just, it's interesting to me that that's how things have shifted. And so now this, this drive to get this one thing, um, is, is creating a very stressful environment for us. And when we don't have that one thing, look what happens, you know, you probably become homeless or, um, your, your likelihood of survival drops. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, yeah, I've never kind of looked at it from that socioeconomic or more macroeconomic capitalist kind of perspective. I've never sort of looked at it that way. So I appreciate you kind of introducing me to that. Um, and we could totally go down a philosophical rabbit hole there, there, no doubt. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, but we're, we're about, about wrapped up for time. But um, I really appreciate your time. I'm so glad that we were able to make this happen. Um, but I'd really love if you could share where people can find you online and also where they can get your book. Yeah. Um, my website is called resourceyourhealth.com. Uh, and there's links to my book on there or they can find it on Amazon. Um, but my blog is on there as well. That's where I run my health coaching through is through resourceyourhealth.com. And then I'm also on the social media a bit reluctantly, but I'm, I'm there. <laughs> um, and it's just Dr. Stephen Hussey, Dr. Stephen Hussey. So they can find me there. Awesome. And as usual, guys, like for anyone listening, if you want to connect with either of us or you enjoyed this episode, please take a screenshot on your phone and share it to your preferred social media platform, be it Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook, whichever one you like and tag both of us. All of our information and links and Dr. Stephen Hussey's information will be down there below so you can connect with him. And we've touched a little bit, just to give you guys a bit of a teaser, we've touched a little bit on metabolic flexibility stuff and we'll probably do another episode soon on the carnivore diet because a big part of uh, how Dr. Stephen Hussey manages his type 1 diabetes is using the carnivore diet. So we're going to do an episode on that in future. But to wrap up for now, I just would love to hear for the, for the listeners, what is one piece of health information that you wish more people knew about? Um, I've been pointing this one out recently because I think it's really important with all the um, with all the health information out there um, on the internet and everywhere, it's just people can get really confused. And so I want to point out one thing, and that is when you see a study or a headline in a news article or a blog or whatever that says, you know, this thing is associated with this thing, that means that the study proved an association, but it did not prove causation. Um, and so that's called an epidemiological study. And we can't really draw conclusions from those because there's multiple flaws with epidemiology. With epidemiology, we should, you know, take that information and use that to design clinical trials and things like that, uh, or more um, uh, higher levels of, of studies. And so when people read headlines and they see the word, this is associated with this, you can't take that as as truth. It's just information and the media likes to spin it in a way that this means that oh this directly causes this but there's you can't prove causation with those types of things so i like to point that out to people yeah i think that's great and the fact that we're in this clickbait sort of era of social media and instant gratification and lit, lit, quite legitimately journalists trying to keep their jobs by pumping out this stuff i think it's really good to make people aware that they should go along and follow pages like yours where you're sharing real information from an expert that actually understands it so i'm grateful for you sharing that 
Yeah, and I and I will share share studies that show association, but I always mention this is just an association. It's just interesting. It doesn't prove anything. Yeah, totally. I, I love that. So thanks so much for your time. I'm really grateful, and I really look forward to doing another episode again soon on the carnivore diet. Yeah, I'd love to. I'm excited about that. No worries. All right, man. I hope you have a good day, and we'll chat soon. You too. Thanks, man. Thanks. Bye. Thanks for listening to the How to Not Get Sick and Die podcast. If you love this episode and health information is your thing, then please consider subscribing to the show. And when you're done, head over to iTunes, Google Podcast, or whichever app you use, and we'd be grateful if you could leave us a five-star rating and write a review sharing your opinion on the show as it really helps the podcast grow. Thanks so much, and I'll see you on the next episode. Whilst the presenter that feature on this podcast endeavour to provide accurate information, it cannot possibly take into account your individual circumstances, and therefore the content on this podcast provided by any of the speakers is not intended as advice in any way for any individual, and should not be a replacement for professional medical or health advice of any nature. Always seek advice regarding your personal situation from a qualified medical professional.